Hey, I need a new one of these. Somebody help me. That's hilarious. I've never in my 28 years of ministry ever. I know I'm going to need a new one of those. Can you go find me a new one of those? That's not going to work. Um, <laughs> he sets it down like, here, here's that thing. Um, hey, real quick, uh, let's ignore that. And let me first of all say good morning. And I, uh, if you're visiting here today, I just want to welcome you just like Shauna did and just respond to that song because, number one, didn't Jenna do a phenomenal job? Just, she's unbelievable. And then, um, uh, and not only did she sing it really well, but if you think about the words of that song, it's almost as if the melody is a little contrary to the lyrics because the melody makes you feel like do, 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 like this. And then, but you listen to it and it says, I just want to look, I want to look for some real friends. Because every time I find one and let them in, they just let me down. And so the song is about this search for friends. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that very much. All right. Let's all thank Isaac for, for fetching that, would you? Thank you, sir. So, um, so the, uh, but the idea of the song is really kind of in the direction that we're going today. Because you've arrived for part number two of a series that we're in called The Color of Your Dishes. And the series title came from the idea that when we enter into an intentional, spiritual, authentic relationship with someone, this idea that Jesus introduced as discipleship, that really the best, you know, qualification of that relationship is that they would live life with you. Not just information transfer, not just taking a course of discipleship. But after all, we learned last week, and if you missed it, I encourage you to go online and watch it. We learned that the word discipleship is a very relational term. And actually, the very definition was modeled by Jesus as following Jesus every day. And his disciples would literally walk in the dust of the rabbi for years and years, which means that when people heard the term discipleship in the first century, they understood it was a massively, you know, relational kind of an experience. And so what we're talking about is we're talking about entering into a relationship with others in our lives, so much so that they know what color our dishes are. And so that really is it. We invite them into our home, not just to see, you know, us, but also to see the real us. So today we're focusing on the fact that, uh, you know, when, when, when you're with somebody relationally, they see your good and your bad. So today we're kind of focusing on the fact that we don't just want them to see the color of our dishes. We have to be willing to let people see our dirty dishes. All right. Well, in other words, the good and the bad in our lives. I don't know if you have like a best friend. If you've been around a while, you've heard me reference. Uh, I've have, I have a handful of really good friends, and I bet you do too. I met my very best friend in the world uh, in the eighth grade, and I remember getting on the bus, ready to head home the last day of school. And at the very last second, even though I lived a very far distance away, I decided to get off the bus and walk with a crowd of people. And they just had this crowd of people. Uh, and I, I didn't know where you know that crowd came from, but I, it looked fun. So I jumped off the bus, and I said, I'm going to walk home and follow this crowd of people. So I did, and it was, in the, you know, again, it was the last day of eighth grade. And it was led by a guy who's now my best friend, Jeff Miller, and he had a bullhorn, and he was telling people to evacuate their house for, for there was a gas leak. So he was just like, attention, everybody, I need to evacuate your house. You know, of course, nobody believed him because he's an eighth grader. But it was just pretty funny. And then I remember, like, walking all the way to McDonald's, and one by one, everybody kind of went to their respective homes. And it was just he and I left, and we went into McDonald's, and we saw a senior, and her name was, or maybe she was a junior, her name was Pam Ross. And he said, watch this. He said, I'm going to get Pam to buy me a Happy Meal. 
And I said, there's no way you can do that. And he says, no, watch this. So he walked up, and he said, Pam, buy me a Happy Meal. Give me $5. And she said, uh, no, I'm not doing that. And he dropped to his knees in front of everybody, and he screams out in a loud voice, please don't leave me. What about the baby? <laughs> and she's like, here's $5. Here. And then and he gets up. And I looked at this guy. I'm like, who is this guy? Right? Well, afterwards, we struck a bond, and so here it is, 30-something years later, and I've entered into an authentic relationship, and listen, this is important to, to hear, and that is we have to find people in our lives that know us fully and love us fully, and when you are fully known and then fully loved, it's one thing, you know, to understand that that's true with God, you are fully known and fully loved, but to have that with, with you know, with, a, with another human being is an important part of the equation. So let me ask you this. Let me start with this idea. How many of you, and I know this is probably true, how many of you have ever had this experience where you attempted to do something all by yourself when you know you should have had two people? Like it requires two people, but you were, you know, you were stubborn enough and you regretted it. Raise your hand. You regretted it. Everybody almost, right? And I don't know, what is, what is it in us? I can't speak for women, but for men, we're like, oh, man, this says, you know, I, I really should have two people. Well, here it goes. You know, you're by yourself and you're just going to attempt it. And then afterwards, you're like, oh, no, I shouldn't have done that at all. Uh, I shared this story years ago, about four years ago, but, but I remember this one time that was pretty dangerous. Uh, in fact, Jeff, my buddy I just mentioned, is usually the guy that I used to lift weights with, and he was the guy that spotted me. And you know if you, you know, do benching, you have to have a spotter there in case, you know, you get in trouble. But I remember being over Julie's house, and it was a girl I dated, and this was my freshman year of high school, so I was, you know, quite small, and I didn't lift all that much. But we were down in the basement looking for something. It was in the back, back storage area, and there was this old bench. Of, of weights, and she went upstairs for something. She was making grilled cheese sandwiches, you know, with the radio on, and I was down there by myself looking for some item, and I remember saying, oh, look, a bench, and so I put weight on there, and I laid down on the bench, and I, and I put it up, and I was like, huh, I'm feeling pretty strong today, so I put on more weights, and I did it again, and then finally, I put on my maximum amount, and there's no spotter there. I'm just by myself. I'm like, I could do this, and I did it, and I was like, wow, that's my personal best, and then I had this crazy thought. I'm feeling strong enough. I think I'm going to set a new record all by myself. So I put on like 30, 30 more pounds above my personal best and attempted it all by myself. I think it was like 350. No, just kidding. It was like, it was like 200 pounds. I was a freshman in high school. But, but I remember grabbing like 230 pounds, and I remember grabbing it and going down and like pushing up, and I almost made it. And I'm like, ah. Then it fell back on my chest, and then I realized, oh, no. Like, oh, no, like nobody's here. And I kept on trying to push it up and push it up. And then finally, after about 10 minutes, I was so exhausted, I couldn't even lift the weight of the bar off my chest. I feel like it was breaking my rib cage. And after a while, I'm like, this is dangerous. And then I tried to yell for Julie, but I, she couldn't hear me. She was upstairs. But I couldn't even yell. And so I had to lift the bar just to even take a breath. And as soon as I did that, I was like, Julie. I'm like screaming, but I'm in total pain, and she can't hear me. So I decided, okay, I, could do the, I couldn't dump it because I secured the weights. So I was like, what can I do? So I thought, maybe I'll roll it all the way down to my knees, right? So I started to roll it over my rib cage. And when it got to the end of my rib cage, I felt like they were going to snap off because it was so heavy. But I'm like, oh, please don't break. Please don't break. Then finally it launched into my abdomen area, which really hurt. But I was like, way better than the rib cage. So it was on my abdomen. So I'm like, okay, okay. So I started to roll it. It was so heavy. And I'm rolling it, rolling it. But then I started to get to another area of my body. <laughs> And I was like, and as soon as I was rolling, I was like, nope, ain't happening, Captain. 
just rolled that back up. I'm like, nope, I want future children. So I rolled that thing back up on my abdomen, and I was like, I'm just going to sit here. And eventually she walked down. She's like, girl, Jesus. I'm like, help me. And so we rolled that back up, and I kind of taught her. And, you know, and she's like, what do, you, what do I do? And I'm like, just pull. And she's like, ah. And we finally, you know, got the bar secured. And I thought to myself, never again, right? Because that was dangerous. It was really dangerous. Now, listen, we all know the value of being independent, right? We all know the value that comes with that. But there are some areas in our lives where dependence is not only a good idea, but it's absolutely necessary. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus was asked one of the most important questions that he was ever asked. It says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In fact, uh, the, the law refers to the Old Testament. It's the law and the prophets. It wasn't the Old Testament yet. It was just the law and the prophets. And then Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he said something very peculiar. He said, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And my first thought is, how is that like the first commandment? Right? For all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And I'm most perplexed by this transitional phrase. The second commandment is just like the first. How is loving God and and having a personal relationship with God like having a personal relationship with everybody else? And what we discover when we measure up everything that Jesus said, everything that Paul supports, everything we learn about others in our lives, we realize that you and I are created in the image of God who is intrinsically relational. And that he, that he works in a dynamic that we could never understand between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what he basically says here is the two most important commandments are your relationship with your Heavenly Father and your relationship with everybody else. And so what we understand is this, and it's really the first truth. There are three truths, but here's the first one for today. And that we are created to be completely dependent on God and others. In other words, what Jesus is saying is God isn't just a good idea. But if, if you are to live and if I am to live the life that God designed for me to live, you cannot do it without God and you cannot do it without others. It's a necessity. It's not just a good idea. We are dependent on that for our lives. And, and by the way, we're dependent on others for a lot of good reasons. Like, for instance, uh, we, we, we have to have others in our lives to point out our blind spots Because there are blind spots in our lives that we just can't see ourselves. That is a biblical principle. In the book of James, it tells us we are not able to see things in ourselves. We need others in our lives. We need others to point us in the right direction. Especially in the context of the church, we realize that God says that we're dependent on others for encouragement, for, you know, pointing us in the right direction emotionally that lead to choices. And not only that, but also others to show up and to offer assistance and, you know, in their presence and, and to offer things that we just can't get with just a personal relationship with God. And so reconciling those two is sometimes difficult because let's be honest. You may say to yourself, well, hey, I understand the first commandment. I love God, but the problem is I just don't like people all that much, right? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I say that tongue in cheek, but it's true, isn't it? Like there are some people who you're thinking like, why does this have to be a part of the equation? I got to be honest with you, I'm in a season of life right now where I was approached by people around me who love me, who challenged me in a very big way. And they, they basically challenged me on my blind spots. They said, Chris, there's something about you that you can't see in yourself. And they challenged me. And that's not something that anybody necessarily wants, but you absolutely need it. It's, it's a necessity in our lives. 
And I got to be honest, that, that, was, that was hard for me. But then as I'm thinking this through and as I'm embracing this, I'm thinking to myself, my reaction is, thank God that I have somebody in my life who is willing to say, hey, this is what is, we think is best for you to realize about yourself. And so God tells us that it's a necessity. It's, it's like saying, I'll try to get through life surfboarding without a surfboard. Or I'll get through life skydiving without a parachute. Or I'll go running without a pair of legs. Jesus says we are dependent on God and others. And what's so interesting about that phrase or even that idea is that the word discipleship includes both God and others. In fact, it's learning about God through others and with others, isn't it? It's this idea that, you know, and we've used more modern terms like mentorship or apprenticeship, but Jesus coined the phrase discipleship, and people understood what it meant, and that is to enter into an intentional and a spiritual relationship with someone else. Now, uh, there's even a bigger problem with that. Not only do we kind of reject the idea sometimes of others being a necessity in our lives, but we also don't like the idea of opening up to others, do we? We don't like the idea of opening up and sharing our true thoughts and our feelings. And by the way, we, we may share them if they're good, but what if they're bad? What if we have bad thoughts? What if we make mistakes? What if we, what if we you know, enter into a relationship where people ask us questions about the things we're most embarrassed about? And so consequently, our first reaction is to put on a mask, right? People say, how are you? And we're like, fine. The reality is we're not fine. Can you imagine answering that question honestly every time someone asked you that? Hey, how are you? Well, how much time do you have? Whoa, whoa, dude. Dude, I wasn't really asking. I was just being polite. You know, it's just that kind of thing, right? And so sometimes we have a problem with that. You know, and we, we put on masks because, again, there's a couple different reasons why we put on masks. Number one, uh, we're afraid. We're afraid of what people think of us. Uh, you know, being our true selves. And number two, we're embarrassed. We're embarrassed perhaps by what we really truly think or what we have done. And honestly, probably the biggest reason, it's just easier to put on a mask, isn't it? It's just easier because entering into an authentic relationship of being transparent is, is hard and it's, and it's uncomfortable at times. And so, again, none of us like that idea. Well, or I should say uh, many of us don't like that idea. Well, there are several stories in the Bible where uh, they, they actually don't mention Jesus, but Jesus is totally there in the Bible. In theology, that's called a type. Okay, and so the definition of typology is, is actually an event that is preordained by God, uh, meant to point to Jesus or foreshadowing uh, something about either Jesus' character or something that, you know, he will, excuse me, eventually do. And so such is the case with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden which we're going to be looking at today. And now you know the story of Adam and Eve, right? You've probably heard this story. This is where Adam and Eve were in the garden, you know, and first God created Adam and he was by himself. And then God went to Adam and said, hey, I want to create for you the best you know, companion ever. She shall be called woman and she's going to be unbelievable and it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam said, ooh, he's like, well, what can I get for just a rib? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Sorry, had to do it. Oh, come on, don't freak out. It's 2019. Okay, I get it. All right, we can still joke in life, right? Okay, so um, so let's, let's jump into what it, how it reads in Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse number 15. It says, The Lord God uh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work at it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat. And I've highlighted that because that's the command. 
You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And that, that there are the consequences. But then if you skip over to chapter 3, the story takes a turn. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And we find out later that is the devil. That is the devil taking the form of the serpent in the garden who's tempting Adam and Eve. And this is, this is what we believe literally happened. It's a true account in creation. So the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And I, I want to pause there because, do me a favor, go back there, Jess. Because I, want, I highlighted this word because basically this is how every sin begins in our life. It's how every temptation begins. The only thing that you and I have to realize in our lives is, is, is the best way to, you know, stray from, uh, you know, uh, living well and pleasing God is to start to doubt God's word. And that's really what Satan is a master of, just having us question God's word. Did God really say that? Like, did, did he really? And so, again, it's just a twisting of uh, what we're about to find out, God's command. So the next verse says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Which, by the way, God didn't say that. She just added that. She's freaking out. Okay? Or you will die. And then it says this, Satan says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Now, let me just pause there as well, because this is actually half true. Because when they ate the, you know, fruit, uh, as we're about to see, they didn't die right away. So that's kind of true, but the death process started. So Satan has a way in our lives of taking a truth and helping us to justify things with half-truths. The same process that Adam and Eve went through is the same process that we go through every single time we are tempted. And then it says, uh, for God knows that when you, eat, uh, it, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And again, that's another half-truth as well because technically their eyes were opened. But again, our enemy is posturing God and saying this is his motivation. He doesn't want you to be like him. And he's twisting the motivation for the entire command. Now, what's so interesting about that is that I have to believe that really every single thing that Adam and Eve go through, we also go through. I find it very uh, fascinating that God's word is just as relevant today as it was thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago when the story was written because the same human tendencies that we have today are the same things that we see in Adam and Eve. The same process, the same things that we can relate to are there. And what we're about to see is the same instincts of the kind of reaction to sin is our same reaction as well. So the story continues in verse number six. And it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So... They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And I wanted to highlight that because basically their instinct was to cover, right? They, they put together makeshift coverings to cover what they felt was shame. And this, by the way, in the scripture, in theology, is known as the fall of mankind. This is the, you know, this is where sin enters into the equation, so I want you to know that what we believe is that you and I were born under the, you know, sinful condition 
that we have. And so every struggle that we have, every desire to do bad, every struggle in our marriage, every struggle with ourselves and our relationship with our Heavenly Father, all of it is because of our sin nature that we're born into. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we're, we live in a world that is broken, that we're under the bondage of decay, right? That we live in a broken and messed up world. So let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you're messed up. Raise your hand if you're messed up. Okay, very good. All right, now listen. If you did not raise your hand, that's messed up. Because, because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says we're all broken. And so I want you to know that the second realization that we can pull from this, this, you know, this journey today is that we have to realize that our first instinct, our original instinct, do we have that? Our original reaction is to cover our brokenness in shame, right? We, we do the same thing, don't we? Only we do it may perhaps in a little bit of a different way. You know, we put on a mask. We cover. We have makeshift coverings just like Adam and Eve had makeshift coverings. The only difference is we just say, hey, I don't want anybody to see me, and so I'll pretend. I'll put on a front. Uh, I was scrolling through Facebook the other day, and literally just a few days ago, and I saw this image, and it was called Life on Social Media. And this is, you can take a look at this just for a second. It may take you a minute to digest this, right? But if, if you figure that out, you think to yourself, that is, that is really true, isn't it? Life on social media. Because nobody's going to turn the apple around. And, and if you do, then it's a pretty vulnerable moment, isn't it? Because being vulnerable and being authentic and being open to be fully known and then to be fully accepted, that's another question. To be fully known and to be completely valued and accepted and loved, it's a different question. So what happens next? Well, the story uh, wraps up in verse number 8, and it reads this way. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And it says, and then they hid from the Lord God. And again, this is so amazing because we do the same thing. Isn't it true that when we make mistakes or we have sin in our lives or you know, we willfully rebel, we don't be, want to be around anybody godly. <laughs> we hide from that. People call us and we're like, nope, not home, you know, voicemail, right? And we're doing all sorts of things, ghosting people, because we don't want to be around the things of God and we certainly don't want to confront God at times in our lives. And so literally, Adam and Eve are physically hiding from God. And yet what we realize is you and I do the same thing. So they hid from God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, and this is great, he doesn't take responsibility. Yes, I did it. Yes, I, I ate it. I'm so sorry. He doesn't say that. Not only does he blame the woman, but here's what's fascinating. He blames God more because he says, the woman you gave me, you did this, you gave me that woman, that's what he says. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and then I ate it. So that's what happened. And then God looks at Eve and says, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And then the woman said, yeah, I did it, my responsibility. No, of course not. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And isn't it interesting how you and I do the same thing? We, we try to pass the buck all the time, don't we? To, to take responsibility for our shame and our brokenness is also a difficult thing to do. So the same thing that they did, isn't it interesting? Our human nature does the same thing. Now, if you've ever read the book, The Silence of Adam, it talks about the fact that Adam was the one given the command. 
Think about it. A few verses ago, when God gave the command, he gave it to Adam. Adam was the one that passed it along. And so even though that Eve was the first one to bite the fruit and hand it to Adam, the fact that Adam stood there and said nothing makes him just as guilty, if not more guilty, than Eve. And so there they both stand, guilty and accused. And so, you know, again, we just have to relate. Because when it comes down to it, you and I find ourselves there all the time. With our makeshift coverings, trying to cover our shame and our brokenness from all the people that we interact with, knowing that God wants us to have authenticity and spiritual relationships. So what is God going to deal, you know, what is he going to do? What is he, how is he going to deal with their sin? What are God's options at this point? Well, number one, he can give them a mulligan, right? Wouldn't that be great to have a mulligan? He's like, okay, we're going to reset creation. We're going to reset and try over and go. He could do that. Uh, God could vote them off the island and create somebody else. Instead of Adam and Eve, he could start with Alice and Steve, right? He could be like, hey, a brand new couple, you know, these guys are voted off the island. Or he could have them work it off by good deeds. He could say a thousand push-ups each and your sins are gone. Or God can create a system in which to pay for and wipe away the sins. And that's exactly what God does. And this is where Jesus shows up in the story. And there's a verse that's often overlooked that we don't, you know, necessarily take a lot of time to notice. But in verse number 21, it says this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So God took an animal and he sacrificed an animal. And he basically put to death and shed the blood of that which is innocent to pay for the sins and to cover the sins of the guilty. And what we understand is that that is the system that God put into place temporarily until one day God would eventually send the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So if you go back in the Old Testament, way back from the beginning, from the very beginning, from the very first moment of mankind's imperfection, God puts into place this system. And, then, and, and by the way, the book of Hebrews even tells us, in fact, I have it over here. The book of Hebrews says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The system in which God put into place is the reason why you grew up perhaps hearing Bible stories or reading them or hearing about them, you know, or hearing them taught about people making sacrifices for their sin. Because that is what was required. What does the book of Romans tell us? It's not on the screen, but it tells us, for the payment of sin is death. And so therefore, the, the price of the blood of the innocent is used to pay for the guilty. And then one day, after thousands of years of observing this temporary and yet required system, Jesus sends, you know, or excuse me, God sends Jesus into the world, who's, who is referred to as the Lamb of God. The perfect Lamb of God without blemish, without spot. The perfect Lamb, the perfect sacrifice who ultimately would give his life on the cross and shed his blood for us. And so here's what's so fascinating about this story for me is that think about this Adam and Eve's first physical response was to make you know, to put together some makeshift coverings for themselves and God's response to them was take off your covering and replace it with my covering because your covering doesn't do any good it's not doing any good those fig leaves right but if you accept my covering my covering carries with it that which you know wipes away and covers your sin not just your shame, but your sin and your brokenness as well. And so what's amazing to me is that the same thing that God, uh, you know, asked Adam and Eve to do and be a part of is the exact same thing that he asks us to be a part of today. So the third truth we need to realize is this, is that authentic relationships happen 
when we take off our makeshift covering and embrace God's. And that's true for us today. Authentic relationships happen when we take off our makeshift covering, all the masks that we have in our lives, and we just embrace God's. And you know what that means? It means that it's okay to be in a relationship with you where you see my brokenness. And it's okay because of Jesus Christ has forgiven me. I am imperfect, but guess what? I'm forgiven. So that's what God wants us to do from the very beginning is not to hide in the garden, but for us to come out into the light and just say, okay, God, you know, do your work. Cover me in the only way that you can. And it's okay for everybody to embrace your brokenness, to embrace your imperfections and your, your struggles, you know, and to relate and to realize, hey, I'm talking it out with you and I'm admitting, but it's okay because I am, I am sinful and yet I'm loved, right? I'm imperfect, but I'm accepted, I am broken, and yet I am truly valued by God, and that is the only reason why it makes it okay. And so when God calls us to be in spiritual, intentional, and authentic relationships, he's asking us to be open, but to embrace his covering and not put up ours. And so isn't it, isn't it great how the invitation for Adam and Eve is the same thing that God invites us to today? One of my favorite verses uh, to think about is Psalm chapter 85, verse number 2, and those in the Old Testament especially that are like it. David says, you forgave the guilt of your people. Yes, you covered their sins. And by the way, Peter talks about this as well. You know, I told you before, we, we looked at together the commandments of God and others. Well, Peter talks about the same sort of love that God gives to us to display to others. And so what does he say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 8? Above all, love. And that word love is the same Greek word that God uses to describe his love for us. The sacrificial, unconditional, accepting, forgiving love. Love each other deeply because love, true love, covers a multitude of sins. So it works with God forgiving us and loving us and covering us. And so therefore, in authentic relationship, we are supposed to do the same with other people, which makes it okay because the invitation is, hey, I'll enter into a conversation with you. It's okay that I share my brokenness with you and you can share yours with me because this is made possible by the covering of God that wipes away and washes away all of my sins. And when you stand before your heavenly father, God does not see your sin. The Bible says that because of the sacrifice of Christ, that your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. It is buried in the deepest sea. It says that when he looks at you and when he looks at me, if you have followed and trusted uh, Christ as your savior, then he just sees the righteousness of his son. And so here is the question. It's the same for all of us. Can we take inventory in our lives? Can we ask ourselves, how many people can I truly take the mask off with? How many people can I be authentic with? And sure, you may have a spouse that you say, you know, hey, I have a spouse that, you know, knows everything, but let's face it, okay? She probably or he probably doesn't know everything. And then you say, well, I have a best friend, and that best friend I can tell things I can't tell my spouse to. And I'm telling you right now, I, I tell everything to this one person, he or she, is an excellent, wise counsel. And that may be true, but that's still only a wise counsel of one. And so when God asks us to place people around us, to enter into a process, we have to ask ourselves, how many people like that do I have in my life? We probably have to ask ourselves, how many negative relationships should I walk away from and replace intentionally? And, and probably one of the most important questions that we should ask 
is that maybe as a church, as we have prayed for literally months and months, and we have set up in the lobby, you know, these opportunities to join a group, right? I mean, you know, just join a course or a community or a care initiative. Maybe that's maybe something that you need to consider. If you struggle with a care initiative, meaning like, uh, like there's an addiction in your life or maybe there's a struggle in your life, it's not just for you know, substance abuse, it's for all sorts of struggle. Celebrate Recovery is, is really, and all it really is is entering into a, a discipleship process where you're with others talking about God and the equation. That's all it is about this one particular area. The same with Marriage Mentor, that's a course. Or Financial Peace University because financially we either are struggling or we don't want to struggle right? So those are our care initiatives. Uh, you know, the courses, you could take Alpha, those with questions. There's so many different courses. And then, of course, groups. You could join groups. There's medium-sized groups. There's large groups. I always highlight the, you know, the women's Bible study on Thursdays, the big large women's uh, encounter group on, on, on Tuesdays, the men's group on Tuesday. And there are large groups that have small group components. Or maybe it's a small group that you want to look for and you want to be a part of. Or maybe start your own small group. If there's nothing that fits your calendar, you'd say, you know what, I'm going to start my own group. And you could do that as well. What kind of intentional relationship is God calling you to be a part of? To be one who disciples others and pours out your life or to find another person that maybe pours into you or really probably both because all of us have something to give, don't we? No matter where we are in our journey. Now, one of the things I want to highlight, and I told Tracy I would highlight this, is our blended families uh, course that we have. Blended families are an interesting thing because I grew up with a single mom and then my mom, you know, my, my dad married my mom's best friend. And so those kids that I grew up with became my stepbrothers. And that became a very weird dynamic. And you know what? The only, the only key about joining a blended family group, you know what it is? Being willing to admit that it's messy. Being willing to admit that it's complicated. Being willing to admit that you don't have all the answers, that you may not have been prepared for it. Because authenticity and being open and saying, guess what? It's harder than I thought is the first step of being a part of something so great. I'm telling you, this, this blended families course, you need to look into it. Even if you feel like you have something to offer, that'd be even better. Be a part of the group and offer something. But I'm telling you, this blended family group is an incredible opportunity. So here's what I want you to do. I would love for you to watch this next video as we talk about authenticity being one of our greatest values at Kensington. In fact, it's one of our seven values that we champion. We, we, we say it this way. We lead from brokenness in our lives. As you're watching this video, we're going to take just a moment and we're going to receive our offering at this time. If you're here visiting and, uh, you know, you have only been coming for a while, don't worry about giving in this moment. You can give if you'd like, but this moment is for people who are part of Kensington. If you didn't come prepared to give physically in the, in the auditorium or if you're watching online, you can always take out your phone right now where you're sitting. It takes about 10 seconds. Text the word Kensington to 77977. There's some buttons online if you're watching or streaming. And uh, we would just appreciate you giving because giving financially is always challenging. And yet it's a very important part of our faith. God calls us to give back to what he's blessed us with. And it's how he furthers the mission of the church. So we're always careful to say thank you. And so as that is happening, I want to say one thing before you watch this video. It's actually something I forgot to say. And it's only for the 845 service. Are you, are you paying attention as you're preparing for the offering? I told John Pomeroy, who's starting New Anthem Church, it's only on Grosbeck, 16 and a half in Grosbeck. You can, you can just Google New Anthem Church, you'll find it. 
I told him that I would tell everybody at the 845 that, that everybody from this auditorium is going to go straight to his 11 o'clock service. <laughs> no, I didn't tell him that. But I did say that I would encourage people to do so. Um, I would absolutely love it if, if 100 of you said, I'm just going to go flood this guy's, you know, brand new church. I know that means going from church to church, right? One church service to two. No, can't have double Jesus, right? But, <laughs> but I'm telling you right now, if you, you probably know the importance of launching a church. Maybe you don't. But, I mean, like, if you're pouring your entire life into launching a church, I mean, the idea that people would show up and care and that, you know, we care about that church being there 100 years from now. And we are the sending church. And so maybe you will go there and you'll like it so much, you're like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving Zorba, I'm going with Pomeroy. And that'd be fine too, because we, 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 we feel like, you know, that's God's leading happens that way. But I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you'd be willing to consider, okay, like right now, even now during the video, hey, do you want to go? Yeah, I'll go. I, I'd love for 100 of you to say, I'm going there. And even if there's no seats, that'd be even more, that'd be better, wouldn't it? Just crowded, ah, oh, people are standing. I mean, it would just be awesome. So I'd love for you to consider that, okay? All right. Sorry about that. Promo over. Let's get back to our scheduled program. Check this video out as we talk about authenticity.